Hello, this is Carter Clement from Children's Hospital of New Orleans, and you are listening to the JPO Podcast. Today, we are bringing you a review of the January 2020 issue of the Journal of Pediatric Orthopedics. We are very excited about today's issue. We've got three interviews with authors, including Robert Murphy from MUSC, Andy Pinnock from Rady Children's Hospital in San Diego, and Steve Frick from Stanford. But before we dive into things, if you have not already checked out our other POSNA podcast, Interview with a Pedipod, we hope you'll give it a try. It is a series of interviews with leaders in our field, and we are just trying to pick their brains about what they think about the field of pediatric orthopedics, where the research is going, how they achieve what they achieve, and what they've learned along the way. The series is the brainchild of Dr. Nick Fletcher in Atlanta, and it's a really fun way to make the world of pediatric orthopedics feel just a little bit smaller and more familiar. So with no further ado, I'll hand things off to my co-host and let's get into the content. Welcome, everyone. This is Craig Lauer from University of North Carolina. I'm going to discuss an article next that's entitled Hemiopipsiodesis for Juvenile and Adolescent Tibia Vera Utilizing Percutaneous Transficeal Screws. This is from lead author Robert Murphy from the Medical University of South Carolina and senior author James Mooney, now at Springfield, Massachusetts, Shriners Hospital. I'm joined on the phone today by lead author, Dr. Robert Murphy. Dr. Murphy, thanks for joining us, and it's great to have you. You bet. Thanks for the invitation. Um, just in the way of background for the listeners, uh, in juvenile and adolescent tibia vera patients, guided growth or hemiopiphysiodesis is often used to gradually correct the deformity. However, recent reports have described hardware failure with tension plate constructs, especially in overweight patients in, with tibia vera, uh, up to 44% in one of the studies from 2009. So the purpose of this study was to investigate the results of transficeal screw hip- hemiopiphysiodesis in a blounds population, looking at both correction potential as well as complications. Uh, This was a retrospective review of a single cohort at a single institution. Uh, There were 14 limbs and nine patients reviewed, and average age was 10.4 years with a mean BMI of 31.7. So as for results, uh, they had 23 months of average follow-up. Mechanical axis deviation corrected from 46 millimeters on average to zero millimeters on average in affected limbs with medial proximal tibia angle correcting from 81 degrees to 92 degrees. The average operative time was only 34.9 minutes. So Dr. Murphy, let me bring you back in here. Can you summarize your main reasons for doing this study and what the conclusions were? Yeah, so how I was trained, Craig, was using mostly tension plates for hemiopiphysidesis for angular correction. And so this technique was introduced to me by Dr. Mooney when I arrived here uh, in Charleston. And what we found is that we can effectuate adequate correction uh, utilizing this minimally invasive technique. And we can also avoid one of the dreaded complications of uh, tension tension plate constructs, especially in overweight children, which is that uh, plate and screw failure, we, didn't ha- we did not have any instances of uh, mechanical failure of any of the screws. Can you tell me a little bit about the technical considerations when you're doing this? You know, what size screw? And then, you know, within the paper, you mentioned, you know, for Blount's population, we're going for the lateral proximal tibia, but you mentioned there's maybe a few different approaches to do that. Can you just tell our listeners how you go about this procedure? Sure. So from a technical aspect of the implant, we utilized a 7.3 millimeter fully threaded cannulated screw. Uh, Although other vendors make similarly sized screws such as 7.0 millimeters, uh, and there are younger children that it could be appropriate to use a screw size even as small as 6.5 millimeters. But for the most 
uh, children in this study, we use a 7-3 screw. Uh, okay. When we talk about the hemiepiphysidesis technique, uh, the classic teaching from Metazo was to have the terminal ends of the ends of the threads engage the physis. Uh, and so that screw trajectory would be from the medial proximal tibia aiming proximally and laterally to grab that lateral physis. Um, we did find in some cases that we were able to obtain the same amount of correction in a lateral to medial and a proximal to distal trajectory. Now, utilizing the latter technique, your guide pin is going to be on the lateral plateau, so there could be a theoretic risk of meniscal irritation, uh, but we did not find any children with mechanical symptoms or, or persistent knee pain. So I think either trajectory is appropriate, uh, depending on the comfort level of the surgeon involved. Okay. And then um, mechanically, why do you think there is a difference in failure between, let's say, this technique versus the tension band plating? Any hypotheses regarding that? I think that kids with a tension band technique, the, again, those screws are as small as 3.5 millimeters. Uh, and if you um, look at some of our obese children, I mean, the average in this series, the BMI was 31, that the, the implant may just not be able to handle that toggle between the, the tension plate itself and the screw in the epiphysis mm -hmm. or the metaphysis, uh, so. leading to that implant failure, whereby with this single screw, um, we haven't seen any um, uh, mechanical failures. Can you uh, maybe shed some light on some of your perceived limitations of this series and, uh, you know, any grain of salt that we should take away? Absolutely. So this was a fairly small series from a single center. There were only nine patients. Uh, for us, the next step is to continue to investigate the patients treated with this technique and um, open the net, if you will, to uh, have a larger denominator of patients treated. Uh, so a single retrospective study of just a few patients with longer follow-up, Craig, also, I think will be very helpful just to make sure that there are uh, no late failures or needs for further deformity correction surgery. Sure. Do you think that all listeners should maybe start doing their epiphysiodesis this way for tibia vera? I think at least consideration of this minimally invasive technique is something to be uh, you know, examined uh, by listeners. Uh, the ease of the technique, it's through a tiny poke hole incision. Uh, the technical aspect is very, fairly easy as long as you can obtain an appropriate AP and lateral of the knee and uh, certainly is a cheaper option than some of the uh, commercially available uh, tension plate constructs. So while may not appropriate for everyone, uh, I would certainly encourage other listeners to potentially consider this technique for uh, tibia vera correction. Yeah, it's certainly a very encouraging early study, as you point out, low, lower numbers, but um, minimal complications and obviously very quick. Um, so um, I think that it's got a lot of promise. I look forward to seeing uh, how this does in the future with longer follow-up. Um, I really appreciate your time today and also appreciate the efforts of you and your co-authors. Thanks very much for the invitation. This was a lot of fun. Thank you, gentlemen. I really enjoyed that article because I love using the PETS technique for epiphysiodeses because it's so minimally invasive and theoretically reversible. And I really like the idea of using it for angular correction. So far, I've always been concerned about possible growth arrests when you put that big 7 millimeter screw across the physis and possibly getting some overcorrection if the patient keeps growing after the mechanical axis gets to neutral and you take the screw out. So I will be waiting very anxiously for that next follow-up study that you mentioned and hopefully that will assuage those fears. 
So congratulations on that work, Dr. Murphy. Next, I'll hand things over to one of our co-hosts, Julia Sanders, for a brief discussion about an article on damage control orthopedics and whether we need to be looking out for a second hit when we fix fractures in polytraumatized children. Hi, JPO listeners. This is your co-host, Julia Sanders, from Children's Hospital Colorado, and I'm going to review for you today an article entitled, Is Systemic Inflammatory Response Syndrome Relevant to Pulmonary Complications and Mortality in Multiply Injured Children? This study was led by Dr. Baldwin out of CHOP. This paper focuses on the phenomenon of systemic inflammatory response syndrome, or SIRS, in trauma patients, which is an immune response characterized by elevated heart rate, elevated respiratory rate, extremes of white blood cell count, and decreased systolic blood pressure. The previous literature has focused mainly on adults and revolves around a traumatic injury being a quote-unquote first hit, and then the second hit being surgical fixation of bony injuries, which leads to acute lung injury and sometimes death. The practice of damage control orthopedics was developed to avoid this second hit, And although this remains a somewhat controversial topic, many adult orthopedists practice with this phenomenon in mind. For those of us who take care of pediatric polytrauma patients, the question is, does this phenomenon occur in children? And is there a role for regular use of damage control orthopedics in pediatrics? So Dr. Baldwin and his group retrospectively reviewed trauma patients at their level one pediatric trauma center over a 10-year period for patients with injury severity scores over 16, and they tracked SIRS criteria in patients over the first four days after admission. They compared patients with and without orthopedic injuries and looked specifically for pulmonary complications and death. Their results demonstrated that 81.4% of patients with orthopedic injuries do develop SIRS within the first four days of hospitalization, compared to 69.1% of those without. SIRS was most common in the first day after presentation and was more likely to occur in older age groups and those with higher injury severity scores. Only three of 81 patients with orthopedic injuries developed criteria for ARDS and only three died. The authors therefore conclude that SIRS is common in pediatric polytrauma patients, however the high rates of ARDS and mortality seen in adults are not observed in children. Therefore, they note no support for using this damage control approach to the management of orthopedic injuries in polytraumatized children. Thank you, Julia. It's a reassuring article. It'd be nice if there were more research that could find one less thing for us to worry about. And now, over to Josh Holt to discuss his own article in a conversation between himself and another one of the authors about little leaguers who play month after month and the toll it takes. Hi, everyone. This is Josh Holt uh, coming at you today again from beautiful Iowa City, which is currently a frozen tundra. I'm excited to present today the study that I was honored to be the first author of and one that I did while I was in fellowship at Ray D. Children's. And we're excited to welcome Dr. Andrew Pennock, who's the senior author on this study looking at children and overuse injuries associated with baseball. But first off, happy 2020 to everyone. We're excited for the upcoming year and hope to continue to bring great content and expand on some of the platforms that we've developed and bring even more interesting perspective and ideas from some of the leaders of pediatric orthopedics. We hope that we continue to grow and expand and that all of you listening will be able to continue to enjoy the content and encourage you to share it with coworkers, friends, families, random strangers, 
anyone that you might think may benefit or enjoy hearing about some of the latest and greatest research and other ideas related to pediatric orthopedic. So without further ramblings, uh, we'll jump right into this study. And again, this is one that I was fortunate to be the first author on. It's titled The Curse of the All-Star Team, a single-season prospective shoulder MRI study of Little League baseball players. So in brief, this study was a continuation of a prospective study where the team at Rady had obtained MRIs of several Little League baseball players' shoulders and elbows. And in this particular study, we actually brought all the kids back at the conclusion of the season to repeat the MRI of their shoulders to evaluate for progression of pathology, new pathology, or other changes that were found. So these were all kids between ages of 10 and 12 when the study was started. All were involved in Little League teams in San Diego. And during the course of the season, we kept track of all the different variables that may contribute to arm pathology, including number of innings these kids played, the positions they played, the pitch counts, and whether or not they were selected to the all-star team at the end of the season. A total of 23 players were enrolled at the beginning of the study, and we were able to get a 100% follow-up rate with all 23 players following up at the end of the season for repeat MRIs. The results we found were, were surprising. What we found was that 60% of patients had dominant shoulder pathology by the end of the season. And over half of this, about 35% of these changes were actually new or progressive changes that weren't present when the kids started the season. About 80% of the kids who were selected to the All-Star team showed pathology in their shoulder. And this was a significant increase from 14% of kids who didn't get selected to the All-Star team. The most significant statistic findings were found were that year-round play, the number of innings that kids pitched, and the number of innings that they played catcher, as well as the number of total pitches that they threw during the season were associated with any postseason MRI pathology. CART analysis showed that the independent predictors of postseason MRI pathology included single sport athletes who played only baseball, as well as players who played for multiple teams throughout the season. We found that the single most important predictor of pathology at the end of the season was whether or not the kids were selected to the all-star team. Some of the Findings that we found on the MRI, including partial rotator cuff tears, proximal humeral physeal edema and physeal widening, labral tears, and AC joint edema. We concluded that although certainly not causation, but a relatively strong indication that these injuries that these kids get really are overuse and volume related. We saw them in kids who played positions where they're more commonly throwing at higher energy levels, including pitcher or catcher. We found them in kids who play year-round baseball and don't take breaks. We found them in kids who were single sport athletes who don't balance out some of the demands of sport participation with playing other sports. And we found that these overuse injuries are only compounded by all-star team selection, as being selected all-star team actually resulted in 34 more practices, 142% increase in practice time from the regular season, nine more games played over about six weeks, which was about a 47% increase in total games played, and six more weeks of high-level baseball, which oftentimes bridged the small break they may have got before travel ball and other baseball activities started. So a lot of these kids only had one or two days of break off of baseball activities during this entire six weeks period. So in general, it was concerning and alarming that the players who are stressing themselves the most and putting a lot of demand on their arms to be functioning at high levels 
were then selected to the all-star team where they were expected and required to play even more, practice even more, pitch even more, and based on the results of our study, develop even more pathology in their dominant arm. So it's our pleasure now to welcome Dr. Andy Pennock from Rady Children's Hospital, the senior author of the study that we just discussed, as well as several other studies looking at single sport specialization in young athletes and some of the detrimental effects from that. Dr. Pennock, welcome to the program. Hey, thank you very much for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure. So to kick things off, I'm just interested to get your thoughts broadly on some of the responsibility that this study, as well as other studies that have been coming out over the last few years, that are shedding a pretty clear light that early specialization and year-round play and really overuse in pretty high-level sports in these young kids is is pretty clearly detrimental. Whose responsibility is it? Who Whose role is it to, to step in and intervene at this point? And I, I think it's hard because there are a lot of us that share responsibility. Uh, one thing that I find interesting is I've now put out five different studies on this topic, all of which have shown that year-round play is very detrimental. And even in my own Little League, uh, which I sit on the board on, we're having a hard time really implementing these changes and getting people to buy in. So obviously the education helps, but it's interesting. The education right now doesn't seem to be completely changing things. There are a lot of people with uh, interest uh, in this problem and stakes within the club and travel ball baseball. And there's a fair amount of people that are making money on it. So I think having honest conversations with the coaches and the owners and the league directors, I think as much as we can kind of partner with them, because it's in their best interest too to preserve the health of these arms as they go from young uh, athletes to the age of 10 to 12, then maturing to later middle school athletes to high school. So uh, coaches uh, need to be involved. I think the healthcare professionals need to be involved. I think we need to be very honest with our stake in the game, too. Also, the physical therapists, athletic trainers, as much as we can engage all these parties, hopefully in the end we can uh, get parents to buy into this. Yeah, and I know I know when we worked together that you were involved in several different sports and on on boards and kind of intimately involved in the the running of some of these programs. Is that common? Do you see that in some of the other programs and some of the other organizations that there are parent physicians or other kind of medical personnel that may be able to raise a stronger voice of caution within these organizations? I, I think there are those individuals out there, but I think the problem is that information has to fall in receptive ears. And sometimes families don't want to hear it. Families have made a big commitment. And by the time the the kid might be 12 years of age, they're a single sport athlete. They don't really want to start going back and finding another activity that they think the kid can do. They actually oftentimes really enjoy being on the, the travel circuit and going from point A to point B. And that's their social network. That's where their kids' friends are. That's where their friends are. So it can be challenging. I don't think we always get through to the families that we're trying to to help. Yeah, I mean, that's a really good point. A lot of times, even at a very early age, this does become almost a way of life. And like you said, very much social networks are really tied to these sports and travel teams. As far as the all-star selection goes, you know, in Little League sports, it's not that you make an all-star team and then play in an all-star game or have an all-star weekend. It usually means, especially in baseball, that you're essentially playing another half to three quarters of a season as the all-star team. Is that something that you think 
we could intervene and, and make some roads to maybe change some of those practices and, and effect decrease the amount of time and, and energy that kids are dedicating to their single sport? Yeah, it's it's a very challenging thing. I mean, within our own league, I mean, the kids that are the best athletes are the ones that are playing year-round. So at the beginning of the season, they've already been playing. They're utilizing private coaches. They go into the season because they're the best athletes. They're the ones that are used the most as pitchers and catchers, and they're throwing a lot during the season. And those are the ones that our study shows have the most damage at the end of the season before the little league season gets underway and then it's concerning when you know some of these leagues you know especially california but everywhere i mean they'll go a long ways if they go to williamsport they might be playing for two more months and in our league for about a four-week stretch they practiced almost every day i believe they had one day off per week that wasn't a game or practice. And if we looked at the total number of practices that they had, I mean, it almost exceeded the number of practices they had in the regular season. So you're taking these damaged arms, now adding a whole lot more volume. And on top of it, a lot of the travel ball teams have started now. So these kids are now doing some doubling up with the travel ball team on top of it. And then when the all-star season starts and they have no break going into their fall travel ball season. So it's a real big problem and it's a big challenge. So I think having honest conversations that, hey, if they're going to push the all-star season, they need to protect their young, uh, their their child's arm at the end of the season. So at the end of the all-star season, you know, schedule six weeks of a break. You know, the travel ball team can wait. So if you're aware of that on the front side, I think that can help. As far as changing, you know, the Little League World Series, I mean, it's a great event. It's ingrained in baseball culture. I don't know how uh, that will change. Is it only continues to grow and it's more televised and people viewing in. So I... I'm not sure if we're going to see dramatic changes there, but I think if we can maybe get some some rest in the off-season, that might help. Yeah, very good point. It is becoming more and more popular. And I saw a statistic recently that baseball is one of the sports that's on the rise in America as kids are filtering away from football and some of the other sports even more towards baseball. So I think it's certainly an uphill battle from here to really raise the caution and raise the awareness and make sure parents especially, but also coaches and, and administrators and tournament organizers and league organizers are certainly aware. On the research side, where do we go? Where do we go from here? What's next? Like you said, you've published, you know, at least five studies pretty clearly showing damage to kind of these developing arms and shoulders and elbows. I don't think we have, you know, definitive causation and and a direct connection between any one particular activity and one particular injury, but is there a next step in the works for you guys at Rady to look at this any further or any deeper? Yeah, we just finished a study, which obviously you were involved with, looking at three-year follow-up on elbow, uh, the cohort where we MRI'd elbows at the beginning season and the end of the season, and it's pretty remarkable how much damage continues to accumulate over the next three years as these kids play. I think it's really a slow progression of pathology. And I think understanding this progression of pathology to where it really initially is asymptomatic findings on MRI, then eventually it becomes symptomatic and then eventually it affects the athlete's career. It even either results in a surgery or a time off. And I think if we can start looking more at that, which we're trying to focus on 
with our three-year study, and then hopefully we can then follow them up even into adulthood when they're no longer playing baseball to see how much damage they've accumulated through their throwing years, and then potentially knowing or having a better understanding of what the long-term effects of that are. And I think a lot of this probably is the damage that we see that slowly accumulates over life, that these are the partial thickness rotator cuff tears that progress to asymptomatic full thickness rotator cuffs, and then eventually become rotator cuff tears that require surgery. So, and it's concerning if this stuff is occurring at such a young age. So I think a better understanding of this, a better understanding of who will eventually become asymptomatic, and then ultimately, if we can then intervene, and if we can come up with logical solutions that allow the athletes to continue to develop, but at the same time protect them as they work through their development skill acquisition. Well, I think you're right on track and you're the man for the job as as a sports surgeon yourself, as a parent, as an advocate of baseball players, as someone who certainly is entrenched in the, uh, the day-to-day workings of the baseball season. I know you do a lot and I think you told me you're on your way right now to, to one of those meetings to focus on some of the health and safety of, of the young athletes. So we really appreciate the work you do. I appreciate the study that you guys were able to put forward out of Rady and thank you for joining us on the program today. Well, thank you for showcasing this article. I appreciate it. Josh and Andy, thank you. Really good stuff. It's such a tough situation that these kids and parents feel like they have to overdo it to have a shot at advancing to the next level. And then they have to hope they have not only the physical and athletic talent, but also the physical resiliency not to get injured. And as we're seeing, lots do not. Unfortunately, it looks like this will probably be a dilemma we're dealing with for the rest of our careers. And now to wrap things up, I'll hand things back over to Julia for a conversation with Steve Frick about his recent survey study and really an extended conversation about survey studies as a whole. This is your co-host Julia Sanders from Children's Hospital Colorado, and I'm thrilled to have Dr. Steve Frick from Stanford, immediate past president of POSNA, on the phone with us today. Uh, Dr. Frick, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for inviting me. I'm glad to be here, and I just want to give uh, you and uh, Carter and the rest of the people doing the podcast uh, a shout out for doing a great job. I think it's a great um, educational benefit to uh, subscribers to JPO and to our society uh, posing as members. So thanks. Absolutely. Thanks for being a supporter. So I'm really excited to have a discussion today about survey-based research. Um, You actually have an article in this month's journal uh, that's called Surveying the POSNA Landscape, What Can We Learn from Society Survey Studies? And there's actually two survey studies also published in this month's journal, one about um, UBC management and another about vitamin D supplementation. So uh, clearly, this is a hot topic and a, and a really increasingly popular uh, research uh, option. So could you give our listeners maybe an overview of what survey-based research is and then why you think it's becoming more and more popular? Sure. Um, our, this study that I was a part of really was uh, the brainchild of Brendan Williams, who's the lead author, um, who I met when he was a medical student, uh, sorry, as a resident at the University of Florida, and he did some work with me when I was working at the Moore Children's Hospital there before I moved to Stanford. And so it's really Brendan's idea, but uh, as I was involved with uh, Posen at that time, and we were, as a society, trying to uh, get a handle on how to better, one, how to better improve the evidence that survey studies provide, but mainly look at uh, one of the advantages of having a society is that we then have a group of people with shared interest and and then we can use the power of the numbers of our members 
who are practicing pediatric orthopedic surgery to hopefully provide more information and meet our mission to you know provide better musculoskeletal care for the children and uh, adolescents that we take care of. And I think that the two survey articles that are published in the same journal as our article point out why survey studies are needed because both UBCs and uh, uh, what was uh, what was the other article? Uh, it was vitamin D. Oh yeah, vitamin D for sure. So. So those two things, if you just think about them, we still aren't exactly sure what to do with those, you know, questions. So should, you know, what's a normal vitamin D level? Is vitamin D deficiency or insufficiency related to any of the things that we take care of in pediatric orthopedics? Should we be giving patients vitamin D supplementation? And when we don't have evidence, uh, as is true for the UBC question as well, sometimes the best thing to do is to survey experts. I mean, that's what what we all do when we have a case that we're not sure what to do with. We try to find people that have experience with that problem and either informally survey them by calling them on the phone, showing them x-rays, talking to them, sending emails around, uh, getting multiple opinions. Well, survey studies let us do that uh, on a larger scale and uh, try to hopefully then focus the question so maybe we can design a better research study to improve the level of our evidence. Absolutely. So I, I think you got you brought up a lot of good points there, and and clearly this is a really huge resource that we can tap into when we're talking to, as you say, you know, a whole group of experts in the field. I think one of the things that both of the articles in this month's journal, and as well as your article, bring up is that there are so many potential sources of bias in these studies, uh, as well as kind of methodology limitations. You know, specifically like non-responder bias. What are you know some of these that you think about, and and how do you think we can limit them, particularly as a as a POSNA group? Well, again, you have uh, pointed out some of the things that we talked about uh, in the discussion of our article and really put together a table. The second table in the article is really sort of geared towards how how can we improve this process? What are the things that we can do? And I think that the society has really, you know, we, we really value our members' time and our members' privacy. And so giving out, for example, the list of emails for all of our members is something that we're very hesitant to do got to have a good purpose and has to meet our mission. And and so the leadership decided that we would charge the evidence-based medicine committee with vetting these surveys. And we talk about that in the article a little bit. We, we've seen a growing number of requests from members who want to do surveys on different topics and that they would request to access to be able to email the POSNA membership. And as our article pointed out, there's been a large increase in the number of survey studies published in the last few years. You know, in our own journal, JPO, and in other orthopedic literature as well. So we we decided that we needed to have a, a vetting process before we would allow a researcher to get access to our members' email list. And I think that's something we're just going to have to, you know, again, go back to our members about to see, is there value in this? Do they think it's helpful? Because as I mentioned, I, I think it is powerful that POSNA can coalesce a group of experts to give their opinion on things where there's still clinical equipoise or controversy. So I think we should do it. We just have to figure out what's the best way to do it. And as we pointed out, the current published survey studies, really, we haven't seriously examined it and looked at how to better improve the study design. How do we target the right experts? So how do we get people who do have knowledge, experience, and expertise to share? How do we make sure they get the survey? How do we then convince them that the survey is important? We really want your input so that we can increase the response rate 
I think that there's not really, to my knowledge, a good study that says, hey, if you have this many respondents, then that makes your survey valid uh, because we really don't know the expertise of each of those people that surveyed. We need people to really look at that and help us design studies better, get sort of a checklist for how to do a survey study well, uh, and then use that with our evidence-based medicine uh, committee review to try to prevent what we call we were calling survey fatigue. I think a lot of us are just, you're getting an email once a month or maybe once a week saying, hey, please fill out this survey. Um, what's the right number of questions? So there's a lot of lot yet to be learned about how to do survey studies well, but I think that they can provide value and I think they're going to be important. We just have to keep working as we've done with the other research we do with, I think, in the era of evidence-based medicine. I think we're all interested in trying to provide better quality evidence to take better care of our patients. Great. I think you brought up a lot of a lot of great points that I wanted to touch on. Um, you know, I think the committee has a huge opportunity and responsibility to maintain the the quality and and as we all work towards, as you say, learning how to do these better, uh, we can keep the the quality high and and really make them meaningful. I just make one comment about that. And one is uh, give a lot of credit to Ted Ganley, who's been the chair of the evidence-based medicine committee for a while, but uh, they've done a lot of work already. And I think one of the things that we're going to try to have them do really for information to our members is to track how many requests they do get, how many surveys they do vet, so that our members will get an idea, oh, it seems like I I completed a lot of these surveys, but we we can hopefully then show them like, yeah, but if we just said yes to everybody, you would have completed this many more. Uh, So we're trying to get the evidence-based medicine uh, committee to track that a little bit more. And I think that they'll, uh, in the next couple of years, continue to do some work to improve the vetting process. That's fantastic to hear. I think the the more information, you know, that everybody can have about that process, I think is really cool because it makes people feel like they're a part of it um, and that they have a really important role to play as a member of our society. So that's perfect. Yeah. I think doing think- that will also hopefully, again, so if you if you don't get targeted as much and you, part of that is having members really tell us like, what are you really interested in? So if you have a particular practice interest in a certain topic, well, I'll just pick limb lengthening. So if you're a limb lengthening expert, and then we want to do a survey on complications of magnetically controlled lengthening devices, then we want to make sure that those members who that's their expertise get targeted. And then hopefully the the survey response rate will go up because if you look in our article, there's a trend going downward in the wrong direction for survey study responses. And, you know, most typically in the last five years or so, it's it's really kind of been less than 40% is sort of the average. And, And I'm not sure if that's an adequate response rate. Again, I'm not sure what the perfect response rate is, but if we can get members to know, hey, this is important, and we're going to survey you on things that are important to you that you consider important in your practice and you have expertise in, then I think, you know, we'll see hopefully the trend go the other way and we'll have a better response rate. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. How would you, you know, for our listeners out there, how would you encourage people or or how would you tell people to get involved if they're interested in this to either participate in more surveys or participate in the the process itself or the committees? Um, what's What would be some advice for for some of our listeners out there? Uh, well, I think one piece of advice is that to volunteer and to and to look at the pose in a structure. You know, hopefully we have a have an improving communications platform and we send out a lot of emails and we have newsletters and there's the website. But uh, every year there's the committee appointment process that we call the CAP process where we send out a call for volunteers to, to work in our uh, committee structure. And 
then it's the job of the president-elect um, as they're coming into their year as the president to put people on committees. And for the last few years, while I've been on the Posna board, uh, people who have volunteered have been offered a committee position. So if you want to get involved, volunteer, and we will get you onto a committee. It may not be the, the committee that you wanted to be on, and we'll typically you know, when I did it, I emailed people and said, hey, I, this committee that you volunteered for is full. Here's three others that are that are related. Would you consider being one of these committee positions? And most of the time people say yes. And then we put them on that committee. So the, the main thing is to just show interest or respond to the email, participate in the committee appointment process, and, and you can get on a, a committee. The second thing I would say is if you're particularly interested in the survey methodology and have expertise that you want to share in that area, then I would uh, say that you can contact Evidence-Based Medicine Committee. Um, you can contact Dr. Ganley, who I'm sure if you have expertise to share, he would, he would welcome it. And I think he's going off as the chair, but uh, there'll be a new chair next year. And um, that's the person to contact. Awesome. Thank you. I think the more we can get people involved, the the better quality all these all these studies can be. So one more question for you, because we're almost out of time. But, uh, you know, one of the things that is also becoming more popular, I think, are, are study groups. What do you see as the role of specific interest groups and study groups uh, within the POSNA structure to improve our research quality as a society? No, I think, Julie, I think that's a great question and something that the Posner Board has spent a lot of time uh, discussing and talking about over the past few years. I charged uh, I results when he came onto the board as a member at large with actually contacting as many of the study groups as he uh, could uh, to talk to their leadership, find out what their mission was, what they were trying to do with their study group, and to talk to them about how our society could help them. Uh, I think that you know, it's sort of opportunities and threats. So the, the opportunity is that POSNA can be a place for people to come together, to work together, to connect with other people with similar interests, similar expertise, similar knowledge. And then, you know, all of us are smarter than one of us. And so if we put all those people together, then we get a better product, we get better research, we get better, whatever it is that that group is trying to accomplish, we get that help them facilitate getting their work done. The threat is that these groups may lead to further fragmentation. And so one of the things that the board spent a lot of time about is how does our society help these groups do their work and keep them under the umbrella or the roof of the Pediatric Orthopedic Society? And how can we help them with things that the society is good at doing, you know, getting people together, organizing meetings, providing space, giving them some infrastructure to do work that we think is aligns with our mission. And what was interesting in Ira's work was that he found, I think, about 40 four zero pediatric orthopedic study groups, most of which are described by some acronym, but a pretty impressive list. So there's a lot of work being done by pediatric orthopedic surgeons out there in small, medium, and even large groups that aligns with the work of the Pediatric Orthopedic Society. And so the board's doing a lot of work trying to figure out how to help organize that, have it be a part of our society, uh, maybe even give those groups time, presentation time, podium time at our meetings so that they can when they are learning things and discovering things that can help us take better care of patients, we get that information out to our members. That's fantastic to hear. I think that's exactly the right attitude. I, it's really incredible how much work people are doing and um, how exciting the the future is, I think, for our, for our society. So thank you so much. We're out of time, but I really appreciate you spending the time with us uh, this morning. And thank you, uh, it was a pleasure yeah. to be here. And again, uh, congrats on a, a great product with the 
podcast and uh, all the, uh, hopefully it's going to be a growing uh, product that more and more of our members take advantage of. Thank you, Dr. Sanders and Dr. Frick. You know, you've actually reminded me of something I've heard one of my mentors say many times, in fact, that even though these surveys are a pain when you open your inbox and you see it, if you just take a minute and remember what a privilege it is to be a part of POSNA or the SRS and how much these societies really enrich our professional lives, it makes it a lot easier just to click through and get it done. Well, that's it for this month. Thank you for joining us as always. And if you have not checked out Interview with a PD Pod yet, or maybe you just haven't checked out the most recent episode, it was an interview with Dr. Todd Milbrandt, and I personally really enjoyed it. So thank you and see you next month. Mm-hmm.